Uh, but we're finishing Titus tonight, so turn with me, third chapter. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We can put one in your hands. And I'll be reading verses 9 through 15, Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 9. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first second admonition. There's something in church discipline, you don't see that often anymore. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. When I send Artemis to you and Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this Wednesday evening. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time. We can set it aside, open the word together as a family. Lord, just hear your voice. Lord, we pray that you still our hearts from the things of today. Fill us with your spirit. Let us hear from you. Lord, anoint now your word. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Paul's closing remarks here, they put a bow on this pastoral epistle uh, where we saw the foundations of truth and grace and leadership roles and discipleship roles and examples. And of course, the centrality of Jesus, right? We always see Jesus at the center here. All these things were touched on, chapters 1 through 3. And these final verses, they give us a practical and purposeful reminder that the church body must be moving in the same direction. Would you agree with that? The church has to be moving in the same direction as part of the larger work of the gospel. The whole reason we're saved is because of the gospel, and the whole reason we're now a church body is to bring the gospel to others. And it's to do so, the church is to do this in a fallen world that needs Jesus even when they don't know they need Jesus. There was a time when you didn't know you needed Jesus, right? But God used someone in the body of Christ, i.e. the church, the family of God, because they were moving in the right direction. Now, my family will tell you that I pretty much like a wide range of music. You guys like a wide range of music, or are you, are you really narrow? You know, it's like, the only thing I like is this genre and nothing else. I like a wide range. I, I'm pretty, uh, I like a lot of things. I, I like a wide range of food. I like a lot of different places. I've traveled all over the country. People say, where's your favorite? I said, a lot of them. Um, but my favorite music by far is worship music. By far, Worship up here, everything else up below. But I, I like, and when it comes to worship music, I don't know about you, I like choirs. We don't have a choir. If we ever build this out and you know, build, you know, put a ramp here and put a bunch of seats, I like choirs. Um, I like praise teams. We have a praise team. Typically on Sunday we have a praise team. I like praise teams. I even like individual solos, even on a Sunday morning. 
We don't do many here. I've talked twice. I said, I'm okay with individual solos. You, get, you know, someone wants to belt it out. That's good. I love quite a few hymns. I like country music. If it's clean, and that's not easy. My girls say, Dad, there's always a whiskey or a beer somewhere there. That's true. <laughs> you've got to be careful. So you've got to switch the channel. But, you know, I like it when it's clean. If it's not clean, the other channel it goes. I like jazz. I love Latin and Caribbean music. Love steel drums, awesome stuff. I like 80s music when it's clean. I like rap and hip-hop. I like people like Lecrae. Again, when it's clean, you know, not, not all this stuff. You've got to be selective, just like food. You know, Some food you need to be selective. Same thing with music. Again, a wide range. My own opinion here, and I don't mean to offend anyone, but I think the 70s was horrible music. Don't get offended. Some of you like the 70s music. Our whole family despised the 70s music. We have satellite, and it never lands there, ever. It just goes right over it. Uh, and I can't get into bluegrass. No, ma- I'm sorry to disappoint. Uh, I, I might have lost. Someone walks out of the church right now. I even like country, but I don't like bluegrass. Can't get into bluegrass. I've I've tried. I've listened. I just can't get into it. I'm like, I'm even part Irish, and I, you know, I know it came through there. But anyway, sorry. But I also really enjoy classical music. I love classical music. Some people don't. Uh, I, I really enjoy the classical music performed by symphonies. I'm not as much into the opera stuff, uh, which also usually have an orchestra pit and things like that. But um, I even like to play classical music when I'm studying. Some of you probably do that. Uh, it, it's great. Unlike other music, it doesn't interfere with thought, especially if it's just instruments. It does not interfere with thought. It actually helps you focus, amazingly enough, whereas other music will distort your thoughts, at least when you're trying to study. My freshman year of college, um, back in the fall of 1987, I had to take a certain number of electives, and I thought one that, all right, this shouldn't be that hard, a classical music elective, which ended up being a lot harder than I thought, because you had to learn all these things about, you know, it's just, I don't remember the outline, but it was harder than I thought. But I ended up really enjoying, and I did not like classical music then. You know, I wasn't saved. I thought that, uh, you know, heavy metal was really, now I don't even like heavy metal, but that was, you know, my classic rock and things like that. But I really ended up enjoying uh, learning the genius of the original composers, you know, like Bach or Beethoven and the complexity of the conductor role. You ever seen that guy? You think that uh, all he does is kind of wave this little thing around, but there's actually a lot that goes into that. And I remember learning, ah, I didn't know that. I mean, you've got to be pretty coordinated to do this as well. The intricacies of getting, on average, the average symphony, about 100 instruments, on average, getting about 100 instruments um, to be doing or to be complement. I'm not sure why this is not advancing, but if you can advance me there. You have a bad battery. But about 100 instruments, um, on average, from woodwinds to stringed instruments percussion, all complementing each other in regard to tempo, key, rhythmic patterns, and harmonization. Just genius stuff as far as what's written, but, but then to see it all kind of come together. And I really believe that Christ wants to do the same work in us. 
I think he wants to do the exact same work. Some of you are percussion, some of you are woodwinds, some of you are stringed instruments. He wants to do the same thing in us if we're collectively yielded to the same sheet of music, which is this right here. This is our sheet of music. This is what Jesus is conducting us with. It's what he's commanding us with. And he wants to do that as we stay yielded together under his lordship and the word of God that he's given us. And if you're taking notes this evening, you can see I've titled our time in the word, uh, The Imperative of Harmony. You would not enjoy going to see an orchestra where nobody listened to the conductor. Paul even uses that, by the way, uh, you know, musical instruments out of, just kind of out of place, clanging cymbal, just kind of anyone doing their own thing. Uh, it wouldn't be any fun to go where it would just sound, you ever, you ever, Seeing the warm-up time, if you got there early, and everybody, you know, just people are just kind of playing. It, it's nothing. Sounds like 10-year-olds could do it, right? They don't have any musical background. But then when everybody kind of gets together, same sheet of music, you see what takes place. But the imperative of harmony, and if you're taking notes, we look at three things as we close out of this study tonight in Titus. The first thing I want to take a look at, starting verses 9 through 11, divisive damage. Verse 9, but avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. The focus of Paul's semi-closing words, because these aren't closing words, but he's getting close, right? As we have here, if you will, a wrap-up, some final points, and then the farewell. But the intro to the close starts here in verse 9. Um, and it's what can't be allowed, uh, which you're starting out with, that these things cannot happen if we're going to have harmony. And we'll see this more uh, in our study in Hebrews this Sunday, things that can't be in the church, things that can't be in our hearts if we really want to see God move. And then verses 12 through 15 are affirming verses, affirming these things do, these things do more, these things keep doing. Now, in Paul's first letter to Timothy, he hits this right out of the gate, what we see in verse 9, 10, and 11. He hits on some of these things right out of the gate. Uh, here, it's part of his closing admonition. Turn over to your left to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Just a few, it should be just a few pages in your Bible. Take a left-hand turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and look at verses 6 and 7. And verse 5 as well. Verse 5 says, now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart. Now, Paul will finish with love at the end of this writing, but here he says, the purpose of the commandment is love from a good conscience and from sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have desired or having turned aside to idle talk. It's always, Timothy was a pastor too. Titus got this word, Timothy got this word that some people will kind of just kind of slide into idle speech. Which idle speech never keeps things idle. It actually is counterproductive. He goes on, verse 7, Some, desiring to be teachers of the law, understand neither what they say nor the things which they know. So some actually uh, will actually, you know, have some level of uh, influence and become teachers. But the entirety of what Paul writes to Timothy and to Titus is that any pastor 
should stick to the Word of God more than anything else. Stick to the Word. Don't get sidetracked. Don't start, you know, kind of focusing on other things, other writings as paramount, but the Word of God becomes central. And if that is the case, it continually kind of cleans out the bad thinking, the bad idle speech, the, the bad logic, and things like that that could crop up in people. But the entirety of word, the Word of God and the study of it, as we saw there as he writes to Timothy, the study of it should produce in us what? More love, more humility, more understanding, more that we would be more useful in the kingdom of God. We're more useful when we're more humble. We're more useful when we're more loving. We're more useful when we're more, more understanding. Not wasting time, deep theological discussions. You ever been part of those? Deep theological discussions. Now, I'm not saying they're wrong, but they can be just a vicious circle with no purpose. Not puffed up with knowledge. You meet people that have a lot of knowledge, but they're not the nicest people you ever met. They know a lot of stuff. Not prone to arguments. We're not to get into pitched battles. And here's a favorite in the church. Brother bashing, right? Just kind of this ministry or that ministry. They don't do this well. They don't do this well. Critical spirit. The gospel is simple and powerful in that it reaches people by the spirit and changes them with the simplicity, the gospel doesn't reach people with deep theological argument. Generally speaking, I know that there's apologetics that are quite helpful out there, but generally the gospel penetrates the heart because people see their need for a Savior. And we came into something simple, and we need to stay. Jesus said you need to stay childlike, right? Stay a bit simple. Don't let all these other things spin into the fact that all of a sudden now uh, you're not really any good at reaching people or loving people. You're really good at winning arguments. Or you're really good at kind of explaining your view of the world. Oftentimes, religiosity and the intellect is about self-promotion, right? Self-promotion, rather than the work and the will of God. William Barclay, in his commentary on this section, he says this. He says, the Greek philosophers spent their time on their fine-spun problems. They loved to debate, the Greek philosophers. The Jewish rabbis, they spent their time building up imaginary genealogies for the characters of the Old Testament. They, sometimes they were just making things up. But it became gospel to people when it really wasn't. The Jewish scribes spent endless hours discussing what could and what could not be done on the Sabbath. They, they challenged Jesus in these matters, remember? And what was not unclean? It has been said that there is a danger that a man may think himself religious because he discusses religious questions. It is much easier to discuss theological questions than to be kind and considerate and helpful at home or efficient and diligent and honest at work. There is no virtue in sitting and discussing deep theological questions when the simple tasks of the Christian life are waiting to be done. Such discussions can be nothing more than an evasion, kind of resisting our Christian duties. That makes sense? He's saying all of this in this kind of hot air, if you will, isn't bringing anyone to Christ 
but Christians sitting in a tight circle debating with each other week after week, endless genealogies, vain discussions, idle talk. Paul's like, there's a world dying out there, and you guys are cutting each other up or impressing each other with who knows more. That's not the way our Bible study should be. It should be, how do we apply this? How do we live it out? That's what he's getting at. But what should be the case isn't always the case, right? What should be the case in the body of Christ is not always the case. In fact, many, thankfully, many will grow in love. I've seen many of you grow in love. Hopefully, you've seen me grow in love in the last 10 years. But I've seen many grow in love in this body. Uh, I've seen many people, including myself, because I used to be a horrible listener. I, you say, well, you're still not good at it. Okay, all right. But I'm way better than I used to be. You should have seen me in the past. Uh, I used to be a really, really bad listener. I will find myself talking to myself, say, make sure you're listening. Don't worry about what you're trying to say. Listen to this person. Listen to what they're saying. Listen to where they're hearted. Listen to what they're trying to say. Whether there's someone that is a mentor in my life or someone who just I just meet. We were to become slow to speak, right? And quick to listen, better listeners. Each of these things uh, will grow in love, and uh, the Lord wants us to become more effective in communicating. You know, you can become a lot more effective in communicating. Better use of tone and language, better use of how you kind of kind of come down to people's level. I'm sure most of you don't talk to a five-year-old the same way you talk to someone who's 50, right? That's a simple illustration of where communication has to change a little bit, but also has to change with other adults. So, you know, where are people at? The Lord gives us wisdom. We have the Holy Spirit to understand these things. And some are growing in this thing, in these areas, and some, sadly, are not growing in these areas. In some cases, as Paul wrote to Timothy, as we just read, some actually become teachers, but sadly, they're teachers, but they're self-willed teachers. They're all about themselves. Self-willed teachers produce self-willed followers. Um, now, many people that aren't teachers, and Paul's not, in, in, as he speaks here in Titus, to avoid these foolish disputes and strivings, he's not only talking to teachers, he's uh, clearly talking to the whole body in verse 9. Verse 10 is more pastoral. Uh, when it comes to rejecting the divisive man. But verse 9 is to everybody. And so non-teachers can certainly become idle talkers. Wouldn't you agree? They're not necessarily leading anything, but they can certainly become idle talkers. Fire starters. Someone that starts a fire everywhere they go. Did you hear about such and so? You know, this ministry, that, you know, all these kind of things. Opinionated, highly opinionated. All kinds of things. Now, this is true in every time period uh, in church history. It remains true because the flesh is strong. We're all born by nature thinking we know everything. Teenagers know it all. They're not in here, so you don't have to worry about offending. They're downstairs telling Scott and Julie how. I mean, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but we're all born thinking this way. And we, we, uh, the more we mature, the more we realize only God has what we need, and, we, and it humbles us in a good way. But the fact is, because the flesh is strong, uh, we'll have to avoid, avoid. He says, uh, avoid these things. It means literally to avoid it. In the Greek, it actually means to kind of turn 
and go the other direction. Turn away from, go the other direction from foolish disputes, strivings, contentions. Um, I used to get into a lot of different debates that I don't get into anymore. I, I have firm beliefs. You want to talk, talk to me about uh, certain doctrinal things? Say, hey, what's your take on Calvinism? Hey, what's your take on once saved, always saved? You know, I have, a, I have strong beliefs, but I won't, I won't sit there and go round and round with people on it because after a point you realize if they believe that, some of these are not biblical unorthodox, I just, see it, I just see it totally different on some of those things. Uh, but again, these things, you know, if they really are saved, then it's not worth just kind of tearing each other up over some of these matters. You can, be, you can state your position, and then after that say, you know what, let's just move on. Because you're probably not going to win anyone over in some of these things. But you have to avoid these things. You have to turn away. Now, I'm definitely not saying, and Paul's not saying we're to compromise truth. There's, there's, cer there's certain uh, doctrines that can never be compromised. Would you agree? You say, well, I don't, believe, I, don't believe Jesus. I don't believe Jesus was sinless. Well, that's not going to be compromised, ever. Jesus was sinless. I won't argue with someone about it. I'll simply tell them, this is what the Word says. Oh, then let's go round and round for the next 24 hours so I can prove you. I'm not wasting time with someone who thinks Jesus was a sinner. I just, that's just a simple example. But we have to avoid these foolish things, and uh, obviously we would hope that no believer would believe something like that. But we're not to compromise truth. We're certainly called to stand for truth, but we're to share truth in love and with respect towards others. You're going you're to have a lot better chance if there is somebody who really is misinformed. I have had people, thankfully, over the years where I said, can I show you a verse? And they totally said, wow, I never knew that. I've been taught my whole life this doctrine, or I grew up in this kind of church. I've had a lot of people that really were open to having their minds changed. Have you? And, th and that's good. But now I know when I'm not dealing with that person. Don't you usually know pretty quick? I'm like this. Uh, the, the door is locked with 12 padlocks. So I'm now wasting my time trying to convince someone who's really just trying to convince me. But if you do find someone that doesn't know the truth and you're able to share the truth, we're to share it in love and respect, and you might have a good opportunity to say, wow, I, someone said, I didn't know that, didn't know that verse in there, I'd always been taught that. And I've had a lot of people feel liberated after those discussions, say, wow, this is really helpful, I'm going to go get a book, I'm going to start reading it, whatever. But furthermore, much of what separates people in some of these matters, aren't even biblical issues. Like these genealogies that the rabbis came up with, why sit around and debate that when Jesus has a whole bunch of things we're supposed to be doing? Some of them aren't even provable. So they're side issues. You may remember from our study in Nehemiah, uh, when the enemy couldn't make Nehemiah and the leaders quit due to fear or compromise in their following of the Lord or deviate from the very clear plan that God had given Nehemiah, what did he do then? He sowed internal strife. It's a winning combination throughout Satan's lifetime, right? Sow internal strife. He did it, he did it in Jake, uh, you know, Jacob and, 
his family and Isaac's family and you know, all of these different patriarchs. We see it's so internal strife with the brothers and things like that, but it would happen again in David's family. It would happen again uh, all down through the ages. So internal strife. Satan loves, you know the scripture, he loves to sow discord among the brethren, doesn't he? And it can start with two genuine believers that are at odds over something. Often, but not always, they might even be immature in their faith. Typically, still prideful in some area, overly, I really know there's no one's moving me off this. Or the enemy can take and place a non-believer into the church. Jesus said this would happen. Tares would be sown among the wheat, didn't he? He didn't say it might happen. He said it absolutely would happen. And just so we have proof all the time, he had Judas sewn in. He didn't sew him in, but he allowed Judas into the 12. So you have a tear right there. I always feel good about that when people say, how did you miss that as a pastor? Say, well, hey, Jesus had Judas, and he was perfect, right? So we're going to miss some things with people. Now, Jesus didn't miss anything. He knew where Judas was at all along. Don't get me wrong. He absolutely knew everything about Judas. My point is, Judas had all the right teaching, all the right leading, and he still rejected. So if you're as a parent, you, if, if someday if you have a child that still hasn't, you shouldn't feel overly guilty that, well, I, I must have totally misled. No. You might have done everything within reason. I mean, not everything, everything right. But, you know, you might have led well, and they still make their own choice. Now, you pray. We pray for prodigals all the time. They would come back home. Amen. You don't need to live in guilt. Man, I, I must have not done No, you can have done it right. Jesus did everything right, and Judas still said thanks, but no thanks, right? So you're going to, uh, my point, and then in the church, Satan will put people in for wrong motives. Judas had a wrong motive, but he, he was a covetous man, greedy. Someone might come in, and because their motives are wrong, they are a tear. And so the enemy can do that. He can put someone in who stirs the pot who creates discord. Nehemiah dealt with that, didn't he? Right? He, had a couple of, uh, he had a couple of tears that were really part of the problem. Sanballat and those guys were a real problem for him. They weren't really believers, but they acted like they were part of the people. They were always causing discord, and they wanted to, to foster that. The apostles dealt with it in the early church. That's why we see Paul writing about it. That's why we see Peter uh, you know, we, these things were things that the apostles had to deal with. And to that point, Paul wrote this in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 31. You don't have to turn there this time, but I'll read it to you. You might recall, this is Paul leaving Ephesus. He's headed to Jerusalem. Now, he knows when he gets there what awaits him. He's going to end up being arrested. This is going to be his free ticket to Rome through jail and all that fun stuff, right? So, uh, But when Paul is leaving there on the shores of what would be modern-day uh, Turkey, he says, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, he says, some of you, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Here's that spirit of pride again. Men will all of a sudden get prideful, and they'll want followers more than they'll want to follow Jesus. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years it did, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Now, can you imagine Paul's messages for three years, weeping while he's teaching? 
that when I'm gone, some of you are going to rip this place to shreds. You'd lose a lot. If I started preaching that way every week, we'd lose a lot of people quick. They'd say, how dare you say that? You, know, you would think that we could do that. You know, Paul's like, yeah, I know you're going to do it. Some of you are going to do it. And Moses said the same thing. He said, after I'm gone, some of you are going to just completely lose it. Isn't that amazing? So Jesus has made the point, tares will be sown in. Moses made the point. Paul made the point that there will be, as verse 10, divisive men that will come in. Now, this has already happened in Crete. Go back to chapter 1. The whole reason Titus is set there is because this has already happened. They've already had divisive people come in. But Paul's saying if the leaders are divisive, the people will be divisive. So at least do your best when he sent Titus, get rid of the bad leaders, and then the, hopefully the shoots that are coming up are good blades of grass, if you will, good wash sheep. But Paul here, look at verse 10, rejected divisive manner for the first and second admonition. Um, we, we, live in a, uh, we live in a day and age where almost anything is called legalism, and really it's half time it's not. It's just basic Christianity. If you have someone that really is divisive and church leadership goes to them and they refuse after the... Paul said, you're okay if you only give them one warning. How about that? This is good parenting right here, isn't it? For those of you that like to give your kids one warning, Paul says, you're doing just fine. At best, Paul says, give two. Because any more than two, you now have someone who has a rebellious heart. Uh, how many times you know, should Jesus tell us to do certain things? Thankfully, he, I think he deals with us a lot better than this. <laughs> I think we get like a, a hundred sometimes. But, but yet in the context of the problem is if someone is allowed to be continually divisive, it doesn't stop. It's like a cancer. It will just continue to grow. So first, uh, he says, reject a person after the first or second admonition, verse 11, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning and self-condemned now, some of the, you've seen that down through, especially this was really bad in the Middle Ages, um, you had different, even Protestant groups, you know, putting people in stocks and, you know, all kinds, I mean, even some people were burned at the stake under Christian name. I'm not just talking about the, the Catholic Inquisitions and things like that, even some Protestant. Uh, nowhere, did, nowhere did the New Testament scriptures say that anything like that, it said just to reject them. It didn't say that the leaders of the church should go round them up, handcuff them, and put them in public stocks or something like that. You know, things that you've probably seen in different time periods. It doesn't say that. It says to reject them. But they're self-condemned and let Satan deal. Then Paul said that in another place when someone was in sexual sin. He said, just, you just turn them over to Satan. He didn't say, go grab them, put them in handcuffs, torture them for a while, and then when you get all the sin out of them, Put them back in. No, he didn't say that at all. So you, you, you see that in times in church history, people have added to the scriptures things that weren't there. Uh, it's not our job to work people on the inside. That's the work of God. But we are to say, hey, if you're not going to stop this, you really need to go find somewhere else to worship. Really, I don't even say that because like, I don't want them damaging some other church either. Hey, why don't you go start your own church out in the woods? Do that. Go far away. Mojave Desert would be great. Uh, go there and start your own thing, you know? I've never said that to anyone, but I've thought it. But anyway, 
next, uh, next thing we want to take a look at. After divisive damage, so Paul gives that admonition, hey, if this is, if this is happening, one or two warnings, and then say, you got to go. This is not good. You're damaging other people. You're causing other people to think this way, talk this way. Um, it's just like in your own house. If you had one kid that was being a, just kind of nonstop on the others, say, this is a, we're not going to tolerate this. In the home rules, you have different, right? We don't have the same thing here, but the principles still hold true. He goes on in verse 12, when I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste, they may lack nothing. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. You kind of read that, you might, this, some of these closing words, in any epistle, you might just kind of gloss over. I really like the closing words. And there's actually quite a bit that we can learn about in verses 12 through 14 regarding the outworking of spiritually healthy believers and the impact and the focus. The church is to have a focus. You are to have a focus. I am to have a focus. Uh, But the outworking of healthy believers within the church. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan said this regarding uh, these closing, uh, not the farewell, which is verse 15, but these closing verses. He said this, he said, the epistle closes with references to Tychicus, Apollos, Artemis, and Zenos. The very mention of these names indicates the growth of the Christian movement, that it was growing, these different names. This is not just Paul, but there's other men. And And they're not the apostles. These are different names. They're not the original apostles. These are other men that God has laid his hands on. Little by little, God was raising up more leaders. You know, Moses got to the place where God says, you've got to raise up 70 leaders. Pick among you 70. Later, we, th- those, that would be playing into the Sanhedrin, uh, which um, was around when Jesus had, uh, was condemned to the cross. The Sanhedrin was there that night. But God here, uh, in these early days of the church, he was raising up leaders. At, uh, as the beginning of the letter, go back to Titus chapter 1, and verses 10 and 11 indicate uh, there's also this weeding out process. Because verse 10 and 11 reminding, hey, weed out anyone's divisive, especially if they're aspiring to be leaders. They need to be weeded out. Uh, there's a weeding out process of some who want their own way and not the way of Christ. That uh, Jesus said that you cannot have Judas leaders. Judas was, we- was weeded out by the Lord himself, right? So... These leaders are being raised up, but God is faithful, and slowly but surely, leaders and those who are able to teach and train others are multiplying. I've been blessed in the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, I think Scott had preached uh, two Sundays ago. Trevor preached uh, Wednesday when I was out of town, and uh, we've got other men. That, you know, I think that uh, our deacons, uh, you know, Mark has, and Tawan. Uh, led, uh, and, and some of the other guys, led our prayer time. It, it's, it's a wonderful thing as God takes men in the body and begins to expand. Um, and it, oftentimes it's not about ability. It's God just takes a, t- a marinating process with everybody. It just happens. He wants, you know, the, uh, even in the, uh, there's certain aspects of the priesthood, you had to be 30 years of age. Maturing is important. 
Deacons were to be tested. But slowly but surely, the Lord is building out, and we see these names that are mentioned. And these leaders and those that are able to teach are multiplying. And Jesus, he was using Paul in a very specific way to invest in these leaders to help them to grow and mature. Um, and ultimately, and I've had men in my life that have invested in me, that help me mature, that uh, point things out, that kind of give encouragement or give insights. And ultimately, these men that Paul had invested in, they reciprocally become a great help to him. And leaders of leaders, like Apollos. Apollos is a leader of leaders. He wasn't one of the 12, but he was clearly a gifted teacher. Matter of fact, a lot of people were debating who was the best preacher. Apollos, some, some thought Apollos was the best. He clearly was a man that had a prophetic voice, and God used him in a great way, just like he used Peter in a great, great way, just like he used Paul in a great way, John in a great way. We're not to debate who's better, by the way. That I, I don't even like say that so-and-so is my favorite preacher. We, we need to stop that. You say, this person, really, God really used this person. This God really used this person. God really, God uses a lot of people. But these different men uh, are being raised up. These different leaders uh, is just proof that the Holy Spirit is multiplying uh, what's taking place. Um, all of this, what he's saying here, when I send you, I want you to be diligent. Verse 12, I want you to be diligent. He's speaking especially to Titus there. Titus, I want you to be diligent to come to me. Uh, but also, he has instructions. Send Zenos, send Apollos, without haste. Make sure they don't lack anything. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, but all of this takes diligence, and it takes commitment on Paul's part and on these men's part. And by the way, as far as reciprocal being able to help back, uh, just think about this even in our own homes. I have three daughters. Many of you have kids. As you invest in your kids, someday they'll be investing back into you. The better you invest now, the better your investment, your ROI is going to be better when you really need it, right? Because someday you're going to need your kids. Like early on, they needed you. So we need to be investing, and Paul's investing in these men, and they're investing back into him. Uh, but there was an intentionality of diligence and commitment. We lack people with so few people have commitment anymore. Just non-committal. The fact that you're here on a Wednesday night is really rare. And I'm not, I'm, you know, we're not preaching, uh, you know, only the spiritual ones are here Sunday and Wednesday, like they did back in the 70s or something like that. But on the other hand, there is something about being committed to something being steadfast to something. And these men were steadfast, and Paul was steadfast towards them. Um, but they had an intentionality. They, they wanted to be diligent. And so Paul's speaking to men that were like-minded. As I mentioned Sunday, uh, we cannot please God until we really want to. You have to want to please God to please God. God will never say, that's it, I'm going to make you a robot that pleases me. He could do that. You have to want to please God. I have to want to please God. And likewise, we won't be a disciple, and especially we won't be one that's helping others grow until we really want to be a disciple helping other people grow. We have to want to be a disciple, and we have to want to help other people grow. I have to want to be a parent and want to help my children grow. 
Amen? And by the way, when you want that thing, it'll change your prayer life, both in the home, when you're discipling the family, and you're discipling other people, it'll change your prayer life because you know you're not capable of the job. The job's too big. That's actually a good place. Once you realize the job is too big for you, God says, now we're getting somewhere. But your heart's in the right place, just like it was with Moses. We talked about this Sunday, and he helped Moses get the job done. Can you imagine having to go face Pharaoh? He wasn't up for that. But he even said he wasn't up for that. He didn't say, I'm not gifted anyway for this. But God provides the gifting, and he'll help us do these things. Now, notice also, there's a trust that Paul has in Titus. So he says, uh, when I sent Artemis to you or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me in Nicopolis. So he says, I'm going to send you Artemis or Tychicus. There's a trust that Paul has in Titus that after, he doesn't, he, he assumes that Titus will get the job done. Do you have people that you can bank on like that? Paul is not even a question. Paul's like, I know you're going to get the job done. When it's done, I'm going to send you uh, either Artemis or Tychicus. And Paul has a trust that Titus, after he's stabilized the work, because there was an instability in chapter 1. Remember, go back, going back, things were a mess. Uh, he sends Titus. He has a confidence that Titus is mature enough, faithful enough, committed enough, not going to leave until it's done right. Don't you like people you can say, I can trust them with it, and I don't even have to worry. It'll be done right. Man, God give us more of that. Amen? Conquer the gates of hell with that. But he knows that Titus, after he stabilized the work there in Crete, and he doesn't even tell Titus which guy you're getting. Could it be Artemis? Could it be Tychicus? You're going to have to trust me on that one. A lot of people today are like, oh, I need to know. No, you don't. You have to trust. Paul's like, I don't even know which one yet. God's going to have me send one of the two to you, and they can come, and they will faithfully and they will effectively serve in the same pastoral capacity that Titus was. And they're going to, Titus is going to be going that way, and they would be coming again once he stabilized the work. As Paul is requesting Titus to come to him in Nicopolis, uh, the other men would then arrive and take over the work. Now, if you like maps like I do, this might be helpful to you just because uh, I just like maps. I only put one in there. I could have put 100 because I like maps that much. But uh, just if you were wondering, say, I wasn't wondering. Well, anyway, I'm showing you anyway. But I, you weren't wondering, but now you know. There's where Nicopolis is. Paul is going to winter in Nicopolis, which is modern-day Greece. And Crete is where Titus is when he's getting this letter Artemis and Tychicus are not in Crete. We don't know exactly where they're at, but they're going to get sent to Crete, but not until Titus is done, and then Titus will come and winter with Paul up in Nicopolis. Now, it's, you know, from an ancient time, one of the, this has nothing to do with biblical, but, or spiritual, that is, but I find it fascinating how sophisticated things were in the Roman world even then, the, the network of communication, where people went, we're going to winter here, they had shipping lanes, all that stuff. Uh, pretty amazing stuff. Um, uh, when it, those of you that get a chance, if we go to Israel in a couple of years, you'll see how sophisticated uh, that time was. It was a higher sophistication then. Then it went down in the Dark Ages and back up in the Enlightenment and things like that. But uh, nevertheless, that is where Paul was, and that is where Titus was. You can see the separation between them. 
Um, what we also see here is uh, with these uh, different names in verse 12 through 14, we also see here relationships. You see, we all need people in our lives. Even when you don't think you need people in your life, you do. Um, if I wasn't saved, my wife and I, I've said it before, we could sit on an island under a palm tree in the Caribbean for the next hundred years and just be fine. We don't need, like, throngs of people. We don't need, like, tons of, like, social communication. Uh, it doesn't depress me if I'm alone. But God says, no, no, no. My, my wife's naturally an introvert. I'm not really an introvert. Uh, I'm not an extrovert. I'm somewhere in the middle, I guess you'd say. But, uh, but uh, God says, no, no, it doesn't matter what you feel. You need people. doesn't matter what you feel. You, you need to stay engaged. Forsake not the assembling of ourselves together, which is the manner of some. But even more so as you see the day approaching, we need people in our life. doesn't matter. Well, I don't feel like I need people. doesn't matter. Your feelings lie. Jesus said you need people in your life. And they need you in your life. I, I tell men all the time, so I've had men say, well, I don't really come, I don't want to come to a Bible study because I don't talk much. I said, who cares if you talk much? You being present is valuable. Just sitting there might be some other guy who's equally quiet to you looking across and say, well, if he's here and he's quiet, and I'm here and I'm quiet, I feel better now. Just that little bit. There's a rub-off effect of people getting... No matter if, imagine if one of your kids said, well, I don't really like coming to the family table for dinner, so I'm just going to stay in my room. Some of you would say, we're about to have a talk, right? You don't get to make that... God doesn't say, God doesn't, you know what, you're right. You don't like to come to the day, dinner table with the family of God. You just stay up there in the treehouse for the rest of your life. You just find your little private island, just hang out by yourself. No, we need people in our life. So God doesn't say... You know, it's, I'm going to make an exception for you. No, everyone has to come together. Everyone has to, I was talking to one of my daughters. We were walking the other night, and I was saying how... Uh, now, when I was uh, in high school in the 80s, we loved social interaction. Loved social interaction. I was, like, out every night. Not, not a good thing. But, I mean, we were just... Uh, I loved social interaction because I couldn't text a group thread. You could talk to one person one-on-one -on -one with a long phone cord, and they had a long phone cord. That's, that was the amount of people you could connect with at any given time. So you had one, and they had one. If you wanted to see the squad, the gang, you better meet up at the same place, right? And that principle is still true in the church, that the, the, the squad, the family of God, has to come together. And Paul was in the practice, as were the other apostles, of coming together with the body. We see everywhere he went, he was with people gathering with people, fellowshipping with people, mentoring people, pouring into people. We need relationships. We need people in our lives. And when we serve together, and when we co-labor together, and we learn together, and when we pray together, and we have the same mission together, and the same goals of the gospel together, what happens is trust builds. Trust builds. And relationships will, not might, will grow. As long as we keep the pride and the dissension stuff out. That, that's what he started with. He said that, that stuff has to go, but as long as you have the right ingredients, 
the relationships are going to grow. Even with people say, well, I'm not a people person, you'll be amazed. I've seen people that were not people person that became amazing people persons. The ones that connect better with it, they just were, they never knew they had it in them. I said, you, it's not that you had it in it, it's you have the Holy Spirit in you now. And you were obedient to the call to keep coming to the prayer meetings or keep coming to fellowship. The Spirit himself then binds us together. Notice also that Zenos and Apollos are being sent out clearly for the work of the kingdom. Uh, it's not a leisure trip for an all-inclusive resort. They're going out on steps of faith. He says on their journey, uh, make, make haste. It's, they're going out on a, on a uh, step of faith, and because the days are short and our time here is limited, Paul's saying, make it happen. Make this happen. These guys are ready to go. God's anointed them. What's the holdup? Don't be distracted. And then we as the body of Christ should not be distracted causing God's will to be delayed, his work to be delayed. We should be making sure that we're ready when God's ready. Verse 13, and, and he says not only uh, that journey with haste, but that they may lack nothing. Understand that the work of the ministry is to be supported by the faithful giving of God's people. He said they can't lack anything. The world, I don't know if you, I'm sure you know this. Did you know that the world is not going to fund the work of the gospel or the work of the church? No one at work is going to say, hey, I'd like to get behind what y'all are doing over at Calvary Chapel. It's not likely that the world is going to say, hey, can we, can we, can we make sure you get another pastor on full staff over there? Can we make sure that the children's ministry has everything they need for VBS? They're not thinking about that. They're thinking about their vacay and their 401K and their IRA and all this other A's, right, and K's. G. Campbell Morgan said the final word, this is the second time I quoted G. Campbell, but he said the final word concerning occupation, in other words, the, the steady resolve of the church, the final word concerning occupation shows clearly the duty of members of the Christian church to contribute to the support of those devoted to the work of the ministry. He's saying, Paul's saying to the church there in Crete, you guys have to make sure that, in this case, Zenos and Apollos are well-funded, not lacking anything. Um, when I've said before, when, when we see opportunities to bless them, we don't want to just, we want to knock it out of the park, whether it's missionaries or someone that we're trying to really pour into and help, and this is what Paul is saying. Uh, it's been well said that we're either going and doing the work of the Lord or we're supporting those who are. Amen? We're either going and doing it ourselves or we're supporting those who are. Uh, but we won't put forth diligent care unless we care. You agree with that? We won't put forth diligent care unless we care. And God gives us a heart, I believe, that is care. And the last verse in this section, verse 14, and let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs they may not be unfruitful. Um, I love verse 14. He says, our people. You can look around from the pulpit up here to the seats that you're all are seated in, up to the sound booth, out in the fellowship hall, out to the mozzers, whoever's walking around the parking lot security tonight, all those, you can look around and say, those are our people, my people, our people. 
our people are one through Christ. Paul doesn't say uh, his, he says our. It's inclusive. This is, this is a family. Paul says this is the family you've been placed into through Christ with a common mission. And what does he say? That our people would learn to maintain. In other words, they're already doing good thing. Don't slide back. Maintain good works to meet urgent needs and to not be unfruitful. Uh, that we might ta- maintain good works that Christ gave us, like gathering here tonight, like praying tonight. The men will be gathering over here in just a few minutes to pray, to meet urgent needs. And we have some urgent needs at times. We may have some now that we'd love to meet uh, in the body. And we become increasingly fruitful, not less fruitful. I was watching a little video from Greg Lardy today, and he said he was, he was talking to older believers. He said, be careful. He goes, some of you used to have a passion for God and don't have it anymore. He's talking to older believers, guys that got saved like he did in the Jesus movement and things like that. Uh, we should become increasingly faithful, increasingly excited about the return of Jesus, but increasingly desiring to meet needs and to maintain the works until Jesus comes. As we looked at Hebrews, we had to stand fast and stay firm. But again, we'll have to be diligent to keep Christ at the center, his priorities, and, and asking him continually for grace and help to be faithful. Don't you need God's help to be faithful? To be generous. I always thought, Lord, make me more generous than I am. Sometimes I hold back things to be more generous, to, to seek first his kingdom and his will. And finally, we have the final verse come to a close here. Verse 15, all who are with, uh, with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Uh, my good friend and brother in Christ, Sam Nadler, who's been a mentor of mine for, I don't know, 10, 15 years now, uh, he's been saying this for years, but it, it stuck with me from the very first time I ever heard him say this. I'll never forget his early 2000s. He said this. He said, and I, I've quoted here probably 20 times or so. He said, if you're not growing in love, you're not growing. If you're not growing in love, you're not growing. And I've always remembered that. And I've always said, Lord, I, I need to continue to grow in love, whatever it is, in my marriage relationship, uh, in, you know, for, towards my daughters, towards our elders, our deacons, towards every person in the body, towards the ministry areas, towards lost people. If we're not growing in love, we're not growing. We're fooling ourselves. You know what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. If we have not love, everything else what? Profits us zilch, zero, nothing, no profit to us. The Lord wants to move us from just working together, which is a good thing, to agreeing, which is a good thing, to even liking one another, which is a good thing, to genuine love for one another. See, love will lay down your life. Liking someone, eh, not so much. Agreeing to a point, but love pushes past obstacles. Love forgives when someone got it wrong. And by the way, someone will get it wrong this year with you and with me. And we're going to have to love past that. And Paul says, those who love us in the faith will have to make this, by the way, genuine love for one another, we're going to have to make this part of our prayer life. Would you agree? Lord, help us love more. Make it part. Lord, help us to grow in love. We can't make ourselves grow in love, but we can desire to grow in love. It all comes down to what we desire. The Lord says, I'm going to meet that desire. God, deepen my love for the body and give me more grace to help me to grow in love and to show love, not just to grow it, but to show it. 
in words and in actions because love is a tangible thing. It's not just a, you know, something we write. It's something we live. And when we take these three areas together, as I kind of end this right with these last couple of thoughts, when we take these three areas together that we looked at tonight, when we avoid and resist dissension, we say we're not going to... One of Sam's rules in his church down in Charlotte is no gossip is allowed. No gossip. Uh, when we avoid dissension that comes through pride and self-will, when we give ourselves diligently, diligently with intentionality to the work of the gospel and the ministry of Christ through his church, and we devote ourselves to loving Jesus and loving others, there can't help but be harmony. Would you agree? There's no way. The Holy Spirit's not going to default on that combination. There will be harmony. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you again for the ingredients you've given us, the, the single sheet of music, if you will, from the scriptures that, that give us the guidance on what it takes to have a harmonious relationship in any relationship, but especially among the multitude of uh, individuals and families within a church body. And Lord, we see that we can move in the same direction if, Lord, we're obedient to the same commands. And Lord, help us to be diligent, to care, to grow in love, and give us the grace in these areas, for we desire to see you do a great work in us, in this fellowship, and outside these four walls in the community. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.